Today's episode of Socially Democratic is presented to you by Dunn Street. Dunn Street is a progressive campaign agency that specialises in community organising. We work with non-profit and community-based organisations, trade unions, progressive businesses and social democratic parties across the globe to, cam- to develop campaign strategies, train engagement staff in leadership and power building and help you execute your campaign strategy with data-driven tactics and actions. And in 2022, Dunn Street will continue to work with folks that want to share their stories, take action and organise communities for change. To find out how you can partner with Dunn Street, hit us up at dunnstreet.com.au. Today's episode is also brought to you by Morris Blackburn Lawyers. Are you an enthusiastic client-focused lawyer. Morris Blackburn lawyers are hiring a lawyer, associate or, an asso- or a senior associate, geez, Stephen, get the read right, with experience in personal injuries to join their team in Townsville in North Queensland. Note, I didn't say far North Queensland. See, there's a difference. They offer a safe, supportive and collaborative environment backed by inclusive leaders and progressive policies. Uh, you'll manage your own file load with heaps of support. And if you're ready to join them, on this journey to extend access to justice to more Australians, then you should apply now. Go to morrisblackburn.com.au forward slash careers. Morris Blackburn, experience you can count on. Hello and welcome to another episode of Socially Democratic, your weekly centre-left politics and organising podcast, which is out each Friday that dives into the progressive campaign issues of the day and the people leading them from home and abroad. And we're going back overseas today. The midterms uh, are coming up. In the United States, that set of elections that they have in the first Tuesday in November after the first Monday in November. Uh, and uh, the House and the Senate are up with, and a whole bunch of gubernatorial races are coming up. And it's been a while since we've done US politics. So I'm joined online this week by my good friend and Democratic campaign strategist, uh, Katie Parsons, former Obama alumni, is on the show today. We've had Katie on. Uh, a number of times and she's going to be back on today from uh, from Chicago to talk to us a bit about the midterms but also we're going to be focusing on the fallout from the Supreme Court's decision uh, on Dodds versus Jackson which overturned the long-held precedent which was Roe v Wade which gave uh, women access a constitutional right to uh, privacy uh, when it came to their own health care so we'll have a big uh, conversation on that. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Stitcher. And if you like the show, be sure to give us five stars on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And for all the updates, follow Dunn Street on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and LinkedIn. Okay, let's get to today's episode. We are taping this one on a Thursday morning uh, on the lands of the Wurundjeri people. Another cold winter's morning here in Melbourne, but the sun is shining uh, on the face of my guest as I can see her sitting here in a lovely home in the windy city, but probably not windy today in Chicago. We're uh, joined again. For, I hadn't been on the show for a while, actually, so it's great to have her back on. Democratic campaign strategist, Katie Parsons, welcome back to Socially Democratic. Hi, thanks. It's great to be back. Yeah, it's been, um, I went back and checked before this. It's been two years. Has it been that long? Yeah, it, we, the last time we talked, actually, so I will, I will admit um, my vanity, curiosity. I went back and listened to the last episode and it was just before the Georgia um, runoff. So it was also just before January 6th. So it was, kind of a blast from the past to go back and listen to that before the chaos broke loose or continued. Yeah, I know. Yeah, the, 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 the continued crazy journey that has been American politics since Donald Trump uh, came down those escalators in Trump Tower and said he was going <laughs> to nominate for the candidacy for the Republican Party. You're right. Oh. I mean, so, much, so much has changed. When you think back then to that moment, and then try and con- compress all of the things that have happened in that time. I mean, what do you? I mean, what do you take from it? What are, What are the key lessons for American politics? Do you think? I know it's a huge question. I know, but from <laughs> can, trying to condense all those moments, like the Georgia runoff, weren't sure we were going to win. Obviously, didn't see January six coming, but were were unsure about how Trump was going to handle losing office. Like, yeah. Yeah, no, it, exactly. Um, gosh, if, if I was going to say big takeaways, 
people, if anything, people are more engaged, right? All of this chaos, anger, frustration, polarization. Um, I think certainly there have been moments where I myself have feel and have felt, and I've heard from others, you know, there's a sense of maybe this is a moment to disengage because it's just so, um, emotional to be a part of this moment and and there's a fear also as a campaign strategist that people are going to disengage from the political conversation but i think there are no signs of that right even even when we when we fear that that might happen um the the anger on the right the sort of continued belief in these crazy lies about january 6th and um, and the results of the election, those continue at full force, but also on the Democratic side, we actually won. We continue to win elections and have um, positive results. And so we're seeing energy on our side too. It's funny, actually, two points. One is just a point which you don't need to respond to if you don't want to because it's going to be very, <laughs> very obscure. But I was reading, <laughs> I started to get back into Yacht Rock recently. And uh-huh. I read, I was reading on the Wikipedia page about Yacht Rock. They were saying that the reason why, you know, sort of it was like soft progressive rock from 1975 to 1984 is kind of the genre that is described as Yacht Rock, the Doobie Brothers, um, uh, Hall of Notes, you know, all that kind of stuff. Right? Yeah. I've, been, I've been listening to it a lot lately. And they said that it was, Yacht Rock came about in the, late, in the mid to late 70s as a response to um uh kind of almost like a counter revolution to the revolution that was the counterculture of american pop which was singing about vietnam and freedom yeah. and protest and yacht rock was kind of like putting your fingers in your ears saying i don't want to deal with watergate and with uh with with uh, the vietnam war anymore and i just want to go on a yacht or i just want to sort of you know like christopher cross i just want to get to the border of mexico you know it's like i listen to a, it's escapism yeah, i don't want to think totally. about it anymore. and apparently it's very positive yeah, gentle. A, yeah absolutely <laughs> guys in touch with their feelings something very rare that was at that time in, in music um and uh, you know like michael mcdonald and uh, you know all that kind of stuff anyway uh, and apparently there's a resurgence in Yacht Rock right now, and they think it's because it's a response to what's going on in American politics right now, particularly with Trump. People are like, I just don't want to deal with it anymore. Yeah. But you're saying, though, that there is a bit of a resurgence in uh, also there is a there, there is great urgency on, on the Democratic side because sometimes if you watch the read the news, you feel like it's actually that the Democrats aren't winning. And even though you're right, you look at all the results most recently, the Democrats are winning, but it just looks like they're losing. I just... I, I, Mentally, I just can't get that balance right. Totally. No, and it's, it's honestly, it's, I'm almost thinking to myself, I can't believe that I said those things because I'm generally not that optimistic, but you're exactly right, right? It feels, it feels like we are constantly failing, but that's not actually accurate. Um, and, and there is still a lot of, a lot of energy, despite also, also true at the same time, the sense of, oh my God, I can't believe I still have to deal with this. I'm probably going to continue to have to deal with this, you know, in two, four, six years, et cetera. So those things are both existing at the same time. So let's, we will talk about, um, electoral enthusiasm later in the podcast, but I actually wanted to start with, um, the Supreme Court. And the decision that was handed down, well, actually, it was leaked. Uh, Then it was handed down uh, in June this year. This year has been a bit of a blur. I can't believe it's August. Um, Yeah, the 24th. uh, Yes, okay, there you go. It's a a date that will probably remain in infamy for a long time. Uh, The decision on the case of Dobbs v. Jackson's Women's Health Organization, in which the court held that the Constitution of the United States does not confer a right to abortion. Take us through the decision by the court to overturn essentially Roe v. Wade, a longstanding precedent. Um, yeah. Just unpack it for us for those who have been yeah. uh, not paying attention to the news lately. Sure. Well, I will preface that I'm certainly not a lawyer or a legal scholar. Um, you know, I'm, I work in politics and campaigns, but um, as a person who's paid close attention, I'll, I'll do my best. Um, so the, the ruling was really shocking because, um, the question in front of the court wasn't actually in and of itself about Roe v. Wade, right? It wasn't, somebody didn't come up and, and call the question on that. It was um, 
really around a law in Mississippi that was going to be more restrictive than some other states' um, laws on when a person was still able to have access to abortion. And so the Supreme Court could have just ruled on that. And in that ruling, um, it was 6-3. I actually don't remember who was the plaintiff, but but, um, it was 6-3 in support of the Mississippi law, which would have made abortion after 15 weeks of pregnancy no longer legal in the state. They could have stopped there. They pushed forward and in a 5-4 decision also overturned the whole thing, Roe v. Wade, uh, and kicked the question back to states. So like you said, they argued that there was no constitutional right to access to abortion um, and, and therefore it was a question for the states to make. Uh, the 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 ruling itself or the the majority opinion um, goes into great detail about um, you know was there any historical evidence that there was protection for abortion access and that's really what they're resting their argument on that that there was no um, there was nothing to base a decision on in history or in the constitution. Uh, it's really, it's really scary, and I know we'll get into this more, but, but sort of what that means for other <laughs> things that we consider to be rights at this point, um, it's, it's a, it's a frightening precedent for that. Um, you remember the date uh, of the when it was handed down? When you first heard this news, um, what, 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 how did you compress this information? Yeah, so. I had I had forgotten that it works this way, except that it was so um, present for all of us this year uh, that you couldn't escape it. The, the Supreme Court, you know, does all of its courtly things <laughs> kind of behind the scenes. And then there's a two week, roughly a two week period in the summer each year when they hand down their rulings. And it's sort of like a, you know constant drumbeat during those two weeks of when you get all of their decisions from the cases that they've been arguing and citing on um, for the past year or years. So we had already had, I think, I think we'd already had like a week and a half of these Supreme Court decisions, which all of them had been in a similar vein, um, you know, a real shift in the direction of the court, um, much more, uh, extreme, much more originalist in their interpretation for all of all of the rulings. So it had been a real a real downer of a couple of weeks in the first place. And then I think it was maybe a, a Wednesday or a Thursday of that final week of rulings when, you know, we all knew it was coming. We knew it was coming. But it was just a question of how how closely would that um, would that ruling align with what had been leaked? And so when it, you know it came out, you know instantaneously, everybody's talking this, uh, talking about it, looking at how closely or not it deviated from what had been leaked. And of course, it was pretty much exactly what had been previewed. Um, rage. <laughs> was a lot of rage during all of those two weeks, but but after that ruling in particular, um, you know, lots of feelings that are not appropriate for public consumption. I think a lot of a lot of people felt that way. Katie, it's okay. We're Australians. You can swear. You can swear as much as you yeah. like. <laughs> and you have every right to as well. The um, <laughs> I watched a series on. Hulu maybe a year, two years ago about a woman who mm. I'd never even heard of before, Phyllis Shafley, um, which was the sort of docu- the, the, the drama series. Oh, I forgot the body name of it. I even previewed on it. We reviewed it on this show. What was the name of the show? Um, uh, Mrs. America. Mrs. America. Yeah, it was. Okay. Yep. And I haven't actually, seen it, but I remember when it oh, came out. Yeah. Kate, Blanchett, Kate Blanchett plays uh, Phyllis Shafley. It talks about the uh, the the um, equal rights amendment um, campaign in the nineteen sixties and seventies. If anyone's not seen it, go and watch it. I can't remember what it's on in Australia. I think it's either on Stan or maybe Foxtel or something. Anyway, I can't help but think that having seen that documentary, that this campaign 
to overturn Roe v. Wade didn't begin, you know, a year ago or two years ago when a lot of these Southern Republican blue, sorry, red states were mm. starting to challenge uh, a woman's right to choose in their local court system and slowly take it up to yeah. the Supreme Court. I feel like this has been in the making since, you know, Barry Goldwater, Phyllis Shafley, these types of characters that have been seeking to undermine this major landmark case, which was Roe v. Wade. Yeah. So give us an insight about this campaign, how the, the prolonged campaign that's been going on for. Yeah, it has been a concerted effort uh, by evangelicals, um, far-right conservatives for a long time. And I think this is definitely one of the deep frustrations of many people who um, feel like the, the Democratic Party has, has been caught asleep a little bit, right? Because the conservatives have been telling us what their priorities are from the beginning, just like Trump, right? They've, they've told us what they were trying to do. They've been systematic in um, electing people to state legislatures where they can change state-based laws that, um, that create, each time they do that, they create opportunities to put this in front of the Supreme Court and get a ruling um, that eventually would uh, be to their liking. They've also made a concerted effort to place judges um, who would rule to their liking at state-level courts all the way up to the Supreme Court. Um, so, yeah, I think you're, you're exactly right. This, is, this has been a long time in the making, and it wasn't a secret. <laughs> so then the follow-up question is, what, were the Democrats asleep at the wheel? Did they do enough beforehand? Oh, this is this is such um, a deep question, right? I think on the one hand, it wasn't unreasonable to feel like this is settled, right? It's not unreasonable to for people to think, oh yeah, those are the loonies. They're they're pushing on this, and let them let them wear themselves out on this fight. There's no way that Roe could be overturned, so we're not going to spend precious energy on passing, for, you know, for example, national legislation, national protection. Um, I think there's some legitimacy to that argument. At this, also, we haven't been in a position uh, to have enough control of national Congress to be able to pass national legislation, really, at any point. I mean. So in the last couple of years, when we do have a Democratic majority um, in, both, in both chambers, um, there have been efforts to pass, uh, I think it's called Women's Health, the Women's Health Protection Act. Yes, yes, WHPA, Women's Health Protection Act. So there have been attempts to, to pass that, and it actually has passed in the House twice in the last two years. But we didn't have a filibuster-proof majority in the Senate and so weren't able to pass that in the Senate. I think similarly, um, you know, when we had control in 2008 to 2010, certainly there's been a lot of argument internally in the party in the last couple of months of why, why didn't we codify it then? Um, I don't know. I don't know. I don't, I, I have a hard time excusing it, but at the same time, I remember, you know, everybody was focused completely on passing the ACA. Um, and then the second, the second big piece of legislation was climate and we couldn't even get two of those. So the, you know, these are massive fights. It's not something that would have ever been, we would have never been able to get it through without a fight. Um, I think other arguments, you know, should we have made it more of a centerpiece of, the political argumentation in all of the elections over the last couple of years. Yeah, may maybe. Because um, the, the Republicans have been for the better part. I mean, even as far back as Karl Rove. And sure. Yeah, absolutely. It's a great way to mobilize their base. Right. And um, it just wasn't as effective as a mobilization tool for Democrats because it was, it's always the case, right. When you're in a position of, protecting something you already have, people get complacent. It's much harder to mobilize people to actually go out on the streets to say, protect this thing you already have, and there's no evidence that there's an immediate threat that's credible, 
right? It's much easier to get people fired up about, um, you know, something that is a challenge to the status quo. And that's that's the position that the Republicans have been in uh, for the last 40 years. I guess that's where I can only think about sort of uh, Marshall Gantz and public narrative and mm. uh, story of now and lifting up the urgency, the urgent yes. threat that people are facing right now. Um, and maybe that's something we probably missed that opportunity to talk about. Yeah, okay, sure, this is Roe v. Wade is 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 law, but here is examples of the threat that we are facing if we are to, you know, I, I, I guess there's enough evidence there to point to the fact that the Republicans were slowly getting control of the uh, Supreme Court would suggest. Yeah. I mean, if, what they did with Merrick Garland when 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 he was uh, Obama's nominee uh, for the Supreme Court and Mitch McConnell just said no and then completely right. hypocritically flipped on his own argument to then rush through, was it uh, Amy uh, Barrett? I can't remember. Yeah, Connie Barrett. There's, yep. enough, there's enough evidence there to suggest that the, the Republicans will win this winner all costs um uh attitude would yeah i don't understand how the the democrats didn't try and mobilize at least around that right well that was at the end of obama's term right when when that happened and certainly we did scream right from from the rooftops about um not um not seating merrick garland exactly like you said the hypocrisy of that move um, by Mitch McConnell. I think there was a huge amount of anger. It wasn't necessarily specifically focused at, on abortion, but that was certainly a part of the conversation. But but Trump won the election, right? So we didn't have, and unfortunately, he was in a position to seat three justices, which almost never happens, right? I don't I don't know if I don't know how long it's been since the last time that happened, but it's pretty unusual. Most most presidents get two. Um, so that just dramatically changed the shape and flavor of the court over the last six years. Um, and, and there wasn't, we weren't in a position to do something about that again, given that we didn't have filibuster proof majority in the Senate. And clearly, uh, unfortunately, uh, even though we did have a majority, there wasn't, uh, the appetite to uh, remove filibuster. So now that we've had this uh, decision handed down, what's, and as you said, you, both you and I are not legal scholars in this, but I just want to get us <laughs> the broader legal impl- implications um, from this from this decision. Uh, what are we starting to see uh, happen yeah. in these uh, in these more conservative states? Um, with are they, are they, are they taking uh, this moment in time to really start to change laws and? bring in more restrictions for women's access to to, to health? Yeah. Yeah. And well, it's state by state, right? Um, I think we talked about this last time in the context of how elections are governed, right? Um, when you kick something back to the states, it truly is decided on a state by state level. And so it's hard to talk about one universal outcome from this, but there were a number of states that had already passed um, trigger laws. And again, this is a sign of how, um, strategic and coordinated, the right has been on lining things up to put us in this position. So those trigger laws were written, even though they they were not in effect because of Roe v. Wade. These were laws that that banned abortion. Um, in many cases, it banned abortion under any circumstance. There are a few states where it's. Um, a full ban on abortion, except in the case of rape, incest, or, or health of the mother, even in those cases where health of the mother is a consideration, there is a huge amount of confusion about what that actually means. Um, so those, those trigger bans, I think it was immediately there were 11 states where abortion was became no longer legal, and then I think there have been another two since um since the, the ruling, and then there are another handful of states where um, there's either a sense that that's happening, you know, in the next couple of months, or it's at high risk if there's a change in, say, uh, the governor in, in that state, where you've got a very conservative state legislature, but a Democratic governor, if that switches in some of these upcoming elections, you know, they could they could pass legislation at the state level. So, um, you know, in, in 
general conversation, we say about half of the states have banned completely or nearly completely access to abortion. And in in the other half of the states, that access is still protected. It's uh, it's a scary thought to think about, and I, and obviously the implications that are, that are having on women, particular uh, women who are in lower socioeconomic backgrounds, it's not easy for them to. I mean, I know that we're hearing a lot of stories of women crossing the border into other states yeah. where we have access, but for someone who can't afford to get on a flight or can't afford the petrol to drive to, and America's a big place, some of these states here we're talking about. That's right. These are big states. There's a lot of That's country. Right. Like, what's the implications happening? What are we what are we seeing on the ground there for women? Yeah, so there was immediately um, a real groundswell of support for these different organizations in the states where abortion access is protected. Um, There are these access funds. So um, I know I give money Midwest Access Coalition. There's also, um, I think, Chicago Abortion Fund, something like this. These fund organizations which collect money and then will um, help to provide, you know, travel fees or um, in a lot of cases it's child care right many of these these folks already have children right and so they're um, they have to take that into consideration when they're also making a decision to travel to get access to abortion so um, there are a lot of these funds people have been pumping money into those which is lovely to see I mean it's completely it shouldn't be necessary but at least there's some action that can happen there. Um, At the same time, we're hearing, yes, like devastating stories about um, people who simply aren't able to access abortion. So they're either being forced to carry to term or you have the sort of more, um, what do you want to call it? The stories that are, that are occupying a lot of column space um, and, and, I'm sure you will hear a lot about in election ads moving forward, which is, you know, women who um, have complications in their pregnancies. And so for medical reasons, um, you know, a doctor would normally advocate termination, but they're not able to do that because um, the, the folks are not bleeding out yet basically right it's not it's not quite so um urgent that they're definitely going to die so the doctors are afraid that they could be uh prosecuted because it's not like you know the question of whether the the mother's health is at risk is is not clear so um you're hearing stories of people having to wait much longer their health being put at greater risk because uh because of these rules um that's those are the kinds of things we're hearing about I often think when I read about some of those those articles and the position that doctors have been put in, I, I, the Hippocratic Oath about do no harm, I just assume that it's a mm. no-brainer. So, well, I don't give a shit what the state says. This is what I'm going to do. Has there been a backlash from any sort of medical bodies or anything like that that we're seeing? Oh, um, yeah, yeah. So I actually, you know, that's a great question. I am not aware of, though I'm sure it exists, the um, like professional medical bodies coming out and stating that this is, you know, it puts us in an impossible position, it, all of that. I'm sure they're advocating for that. You're, we're hearing more, I would say, from individual doctors and nurses who are just exasperated um, by this situation. But this is also an incredibly litigious country. There are also, you know, in some of these states, they can even be, um, the doctors are, you know, face like um, criminal uh, prosecution, right? Um, so people are taking that risk really seriously. <laughs> it's, uh, I know, and it just, and the other, and, and there's, isn't there like, there's some, in some of the states, uh, it's a crime to cross state boundaries to go seek an abortion. Is that right? Is that something that's been that- debated? It's certainly been discussed. It hasn't happened yet. Uh, there, there have been some pretty bold moves to um, try to protect your right or ability to go to another state to seek an abortion. Um, sort of along the same vein, um, you know, we now have access to um, an abortion pill, right, chemical abortion, and women in states where abortion is no longer legal still have access to the pill if they can order it through the mail. But there's, there's a lot of question around um, um, states going after that ability, right? Or 
because they're they're making the argument that it doesn't matter if it's a pill or a doctor, right? It's an abortion and it's illegal in our state. So I'm sure you will see um, that start to crop up, like actual actual test cases of that. Um, I think I think it would be harder um, to try to prosecute people who cross state lines, but probably we will see those tests too. <laughs> Don't hold your breath. Um, right. <laughs> you know yeah, I mean? that's like, the real lesson. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, let's talk. You touched on this in your earlier remarks, so let's dive a bit deeper on this. The um, the some of the uh, I get a sense that the jurists, the judges, sorry, the judges write their mm-hmm. own papers in the decision, and a couple of them, uh, Alito and uh, Thomas. Uh, seem to go a little bit further in their decisions that uh, was making an argument that not only um, that is uh, Roe v. Wade can be overturned, but there's another uh, another set of precedents that have been established law for a number of years are also now in question. Do you want to just sort of talk a bit about that? Yeah, yeah, that was definitely after the leak and then immediately after the, the ruling came down, there was definitely a lot of, fear and discussion about what this means for other rights that we've realized in the last couple of years, right? Gay marriage in particular. Um, there's also been, you know, people have also talked about interracial marriage, so I don't, I don't think that's actually at risk. Um, but, but the reason for that is that the part of what was overturned in the majority opinion was basing, um, our right to access abortion on right to privacy, right? That's sort of what underpinned Roe. And we don't actually have, like there's, it's not written anywhere that we have a right to privacy. Um, That is sort of upheld by 14th Amendment, due process clause. Um, Again, (laughs) we're reaching the boundaries of my legal knowledge here. But um, it's it's sounding incredibly (laughs) impressive. That's the important thing, okay? Great, great. Glad to hear it. So, Basically, the argument was that that is not enough. That was not enough to um, uphold the right to abortion. So Thomas, yeah, and actually, I'm I'm not sure how normal it is for so many of the justices to write their own differing opinions. Um, There were were quite a few in this time. Maybe it happens all the time, but um, certainly we don't all pay attention to it the way that we have in this one. Thomas did imply like, oh yeah, this throws the doors wide open. Let's, let's go back and review all of these other things. Um, I think, I think actually Alito and definitely Kavanaugh, surprisingly, kind of went to pains to say, this doesn't open the floodgates. Um, I, you know, we are not suggesting that we revisit those things. Now, (laughs) understandably, I think everybody's a little skeptical of that because, we've heard that before, right? That this is a boundary that they're not going to cross. So when you hear that reassurance, you know, the hopeful side of me thinks, okay, they're, they're drawing a line. They want to signal to us. Um, and I should take that reassurance. But of course, you know, evidence is, is showing us that, that I don't know if we can take that to be true. Well, Brett, uh, Senator uh, Sue Collins of uh, Maine uh, took private reassurances from Brett Kavanaugh in when he was uh, seeking to his seat on the court to that, he, that Roe was untouchable. And uh, that didn't be proved to, that proved to be wrong. Yeah, well, and and I think they've all said that, right? They've all been asked that in some way or another, and everybody has um, gone to great lengths to say either, you know, I have no opinion on that or I'll evaluate the the merits of the case and all of that kind of stuff. So, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't, it's, it's certainly been a great meme <laughs> that, um, right. That, that, um, oh, Susan Collins, um, has, has gotten reassurances that, that that's going to be protected. Um, we shouldn't have been in that position in the first place. Right. No, we should not have. Okay. Let's, uh, I want to use this question as a segue into now talking about the midterms and, and, and elections. Let's get back on some turf. That you right. And I- <laughs> awesome. <laughs> <laughs> We're just humble organizers trying to do a job here. Um, okay. <laughs> One thing that I got a bit of hope from, speaking of the story of now, um, is the what happened in Kansas. There was a 
Republican primary race oh, uh, yeah. last week or a couple of weeks ago in which yeah. only registered Republicans could vote in it. But at the same time, the, 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 the state house also put on the ballot, um, a, um, a, a, I think, was it a referendum? Ballot initiative. Ballot is, initiative. Essentially. Yeah. Uh, and uh, thinking that, yeah, okay, we can, um, we can, you know, bring in some more restrictive laws here in our own state around uh, abortion. Tell us the background of that and then what happened. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that was, what a great day. I think it was August 2nd. So last week at some point um, when this um, election happened. So um, the Republicans, like you said, or, or, you know, supporters of, of anti-choice, had put a ballot initiative on the ballot before Supreme Court ruling, right? All that stuff has to be done much earlier than the election itself. So they put it on the primary ballot. It's not that only Republicans could vote. Um, there, there was also a Democratic primary. It's just that because Kansas is so conservative, there often are, you know, there aren't two Democrats running for most seats. There's one person who will sort of go like lamb to the slaughter on the, um, you know, general election day as the Democrat. Um, it's certainly not contested in the primary. So there's not much turnout amongst Democrats because why on earth would they bother? I mean, I wish, I wish they would, but, but they don't. So there's, right, right. There's low Democratic turnout during this primary. Um, it's mostly Republicans, you can also um, register, I think you could register as an independent, or not, not an independent, but, but unaffiliated to be able to vote in this ballot initiative. And yeah, they were super smug. They thought this was going to be a home run. Um, and I'm sure the, the intention of this was also, again, to like set up a trigger situation. Um, oh, I, was, I was, was looking at this just before. The... Um, the Voter registration in Kansas on June 24th jumped by a thousand percent. There was absolutely, like, literally a thousand. <laughs> um, there was massive energy. Now, you know, some of the, the um, I don't know if it was the county clerks or somebody, Secretary of State, was saying, you know, we don't know if this is just because of um, the, the Dobbs ruling. It's the last couple of weeks. So this is. Anyway, when we see a large increase in registration, you know, we don't want to read too much into this, but I think we saw the results and they spoke for themselves, right? You had massive turnout in this primary. Um, you had even in extremely conservative districts where the majority of the voters are voting in the Republican primary, the, uh, the ballot initiative failed, which was good for us, um, even in those places that were rural and conservative. So, you know, that tells us there are Republicans voting to maintain access in, um, in Kansas. So, yeah, I think this was, oh, man, what a huge moment for all, you know, just like a real sigh of relief. Okay, we haven't all lost our minds. This is actually possible. Um, I think there are a couple of, of lessons from this going into the midterms in general. I assume that's where you want to go with this, right? Like, what does this mean uh, for November? And there's certainly lots of um, lots of folks commenting on that too. Um, so there are a couple things here. One, remember that it was a ballot initiative in in Kansas. It wasn't. Um, so, so essentially that's, that's, you know, you don't, you're not necessarily part of one party or another when you're voting for that ballot initiative, you're voting on the issue itself. In most places in November, the, you know, if a, if a voter is going to the polling booth and they want to vote to protect access to abortion in their state, most of the time they have to vote for a candidate, right? It's like, you know, in, in certain states where you're, um, you're really relying on, uh, the state attorney, or in most places, it's about who's who's the governor, right? So you're you're asking if if you want to change the results of that election, you're either looking for massive Democratic turnout, 
in those places or, un, you know, unusually high turnout, or you need to switch some Republican votes. And I, I think it is going to be harder to win those Republican votes to vote for a Democratic gubernatorial candidate than it is to win on a ballot initiative, which is essentially not, you know, a apolitical or a partisan, nonpartisan, nonpartisan. Woo, okay. Um, so that that is some argument, you know, that we we shouldn't just expect that we're going to sweep all of these races because there's so much support for access to abortion. It, it'll be a little bit harder than where there's a ballot initiative. But I think, you know, we also saw massive turnout. We saw huge new registration. Um, and I think we're going to see in key demographics, suburban women, um, most most notably, um, I think we're going to see those folks voting, you know, making strategic choices to protect access to abortion in their states. And it's just a question of how many and is it enough? Yeah, I, I, yeah to uh, echo your, your sentiment, major moment of hope. Uh, and you're right. I mean, I don't think that, you know, Kansas is going to become a blue state. But certainly what I took from to your point was, yeah, women uh, or even more broadly folks, but in particular women in mm-hmm. the urban uh, congressional districts where there are tight races right now that Democrats need to hold to hold on to the House. Because I think yeah. before all this happened, I think if we'd done this podcast pre the Dodds decision, we probably would have thought the House is gone. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to get a sense of you. This is going to be my question. Do you think that this yeah. is, are we back in the game? Because I feel like we, this is a bit of a game shift. I think that maybe the Republicans have overcooked this. They've probably gone, you know, they've gone pretty hard. You know, yeah. American, American politics, you know, like well, most liberal Western dem- democracies, um, success happens in the center, not on the fringes. And I think that the Republican Party have this time gone too far to the right. And I think that, that our democracy should be correcting that and then bring it back to the center. And will we see that in this midterm? Yeah. Yeah, exactly right. If we were if we were having this conversation two weeks ago or however many weeks ago, both because of Dobbs, but also because of the um, Inflation Reduction Act. Right. This um, finally the massive piece of legislation that um, has passed the Senate, which was really the major test and hopefully will um, make it to the president's desk, I think end of the week is is what we're hearing. So those two those two things together, I think, are what are really creating finally some momentum for Democrats. So what I think what I think we're looking at and what I think, you know, polling and other folks are saying too is um, we actually have a pretty good chance of holding the Senate this time around, which was not a given by any means, but um, because of this ruling, ooh, excuse me, because of this ruling and then also because um, the Republicans have put in some absolute like wackadoodle candidates um, for for those Senate seats that like, honestly, they were really um, competitive. You know, if they had put more centrist candidates, um, I think it would have been a different, a different story. But because of that, I think we're looking at a a decent chance of holding on to the Senate, maybe even gaining seats, which could potentially mean we're in a position to overturn the filibuster, which would then allow us to do some of these other things like passing a national um, um, national legislation to protect access. So that's on the Senate side. I think it still doesn't look great in the House. And that's really because of redistricting and the way that those seats are drawn. They're just more polarized. So um, they're more polarized. It's also that we've got, there are more democratically held seats currently that are considered to be toss-ups. Um, there are more Democrats who are, who have decided they're not going to run next time. So they're open seats. It's just, it's a harder, it's more of an uphill battle for us. And while the winds are shifting in our favor for the first time in a long time, even in the house, I think um, I still wouldn't put money on us winning the house. But last time we talked, I said I wouldn't put money on winning even one senator in Georgia, and we won both. So, you know, maybe <laughs> don't don't take my advice when you're betting. Um, the 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 last time we had elections in the United States, which was November last year, the mm. I think there was 
there was New Jersey, there was races, there was the State House in Virginia was up for grabs and a couple of mm-hmm. others. And the Those research the off, Yeah, the research off the back of that that uh, that election period was that Republicans ran localized campaigns as in the, the the messages the policies the platforms that they were taking to the voters were very localized it was about jobs and the economy and schools and education and all that kind of stuff which yeah. and i say that right that's exactly what social democratic party should be talking about but anyway and uh and they did well um they had a they had a reasonably good uh run in those elections the democrats the research of democratic voters you know, registered Democrats that didn't bother to turn out to vote was because they saw the Democratic Party just spending their time fighting in Washington and not getting their shit together. So they didn't bother turning out to support their Democratic candidates. Yeah. Has, first of all, I mean, that's a, I don't know if that's a truth. I don't know whether you want to challenge that in the first instance. Um, but are we seeing uh, lessons learned going into these midterms that Democrats are now starting to focus a little bit more on uh, local issues and less yeah. on? Because, you know, when I read the front page of the New York Times, I know the New York Times isn't exactly, you know, the, you know, the, the, the mouthpiece for the American people. <laughs> uh, but, um, you know, it's, it's January 6th. No, the, the, you know, above the fold, this is what's this is what's the headlines. It's January six. It's uh, indecision in 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 Congress. It's cost of living. It's inflation, uh, and it's California wildfires. So that's kind of <laughs> what I'm getting out of your news at the moment. And I don't see a lot mm. of. If I was if I was an un, un, if I was a independent or an undecided voter or a persuadable voter, uh, I would be asking, well, what's this Democratic Congress doing for me? So what, yeah. what are we seeing in this campaign? Yeah, uh, that's great. So there are a couple of things there that I want to tackle. So on, on one, the reading of how the Republicans ran, particularly in New Jersey and Virginia, which are pretty purple, right? Um, that, so, you know, really almost more democratic, I would say, certainly at a presidential level, um, so it was surprising that Republicans did so well or won in, in those two states. Um, and you're right. They ran on localized issues in particular education, right? And, and when we say education, what we really mean there is they ran on this, you know, these stories about the crazy things that your teachers are teaching your kids and they're so radical and you as a parent should have, have a right to, um, to say what your kids are taught and you should have a bigger voice in your, um, in your local schools. So, um, and, and on crime a lot as well, which is a, a strength for Republicans right now and, and still unfortunately a weakness for us, at least in national messaging. So those are local issues. They're also issues that are really easy to tell stories about, right? It's really easy to, um, to use those extreme examples of here's this, you know, this one teacher in one classroom once said this crazy thing. Okay, we're going to spin up a whole um, campaign narrative around that. That's pretty easy to do. Similarly with um, uh, egregious instances of crime. So we know that those powerful stories really work. Uh, and the Republicans were using that and kind of distancing themselves from Trump in those cases. They're away from the national message where Democrats were trying to make it about Trump and the national messages in those states. And yeah, going national did not work well for us. So I, I think um, the flip side of that is, you know, Democrats know better. We know better. We did really well in 2018 by talking about healthcare and talking about uh, lowering drug prices that we were going to, you know, Everybody running was told to zero in on, you know, how they're going to make healthcare more affordable. And we did really well running on that message. So I am hopeful, and this is why I mentioned the, the IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act, which used to be known as Build Back Better, right? But under different management, basically. Um, I, I think that's going to be a really powerful platform for Democrats to, to work with this time because there is a lot in that legislation around reducing costs of medication, allowing Medicare to negotiate 
crisis. Like these are super boring things for us to talk about, but they're extremely effective campaign messages. And you will see lots of campaign ads from Democrats talking about both what they were able to achieve, thank goodness, and um, I hope they will also focus on here's what we're going to do next, right? Because uh, we can't just talk about the couple of things that we've been able to get done. The other, the other lesson for me that I, I almost think is so obvious, like whether you've defined the, the lesson or not, I think people are applying it, is that abortion is creating all of these powerful stories and powerful messages for candidates to, to talk about in their campaigns. And they are the kinds of things that voters are latching onto. It's really concrete. It's really emotional. Somebody took something away from me. How dare they? I want to get that back. Like these are all great winning messages um, for us. So I, I hope that we are able to turn those into actual victories because you know, you're right. The messages about inflation, I think, are finally starting to go in our direction, maybe a little bit, maybe maybe in two months we'll, you know, actually have turned the tide on that and have that as continuing momentum behind Democrats. That would be great. Um, but those are harder things for us. The national messaging is harder for us. Going back to that, that second last point you made there, I mean, if you look at the, the, the and correct me here if I'm wrong, but the numbers in states like uh, Georgia, mm-hmm. uh, Arizona, um, that were Nevada, that were uh, wins for Biden in the 2020 presidential were built off the back of uh, women, and, and not suggesting they're a homogenous group, but mm-hmm. women particularly in the suburbs uh, turned out to vote, not just Democratic registered women, but also independents, but also moderate Republicans who didn't want Trump to uh, become president. Uh, like, you know, Gwinnett County, Maricopa County, these kind of counties we saw, which h- have been historically Republican middle class counties, right? Turned Democratic. Yeah. Um, and I'm just wondering if you're, a, you know, you, I was about to say, if you're a Democratic strategist, you are a Democratic <laughs> Um, I would just be leaning in on uh, on 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 the on trying to get this this woman vote out, uh, both your own base, but also independents, and also start to move into the you know the moderate side of the Republican base. Going, things have got a little crazy here, and we just kind of need to bring this thing back home and just make sure that we're all yeah. sensible. Absolutely, and I and I I feel like the abortion stories are doing direct battle with these um, local school decision making stories. Right, those are the same audiences, and that's why the tide was sort of shifting for Republicans before this because they were really winning on on those education messages, which um, you know, interestingly, maybe kind of started in Hungary. This is like something that Orban initiated and found to be an effectiveness anyway so I won't I won't take it there but um yes I think I think abortion is a powerful message to counteract the effectiveness of these education stories uh, particularly with those audiences I think you know as you were saying there were lots of stories about 2020 that talked about the importance of the suburban woman voter also people of color were really important blocks for us and those are folks who um, well, it depends on who we're talking about here, but um, we're seeing a lot of disenchantment, disillusionment with a lack of success in Congress over the last two years, particularly with, with those blocks. So my hope is, again, that as we start to see some big wins, that, that a little bit of that motivation will return. Um, that is separate from... Um, Latino voters in particular in in particular parts of the country where we are seeing a shift from Democrats to Republicans amongst um, some of the more like conservative and uh, culturally conservative and evangelical communities, um, which, you know, maybe this is maybe this is counterproductive with them talking about abortion. I don't know. But um, these are these are all things that are in the mix. They are things that I would look at, you know, when you look at the results after the election on um, this November to see how are those things playing out, these different blocks. 
It's funny, as you were talking about that, I was actually thinking about Texas and I was thinking about the Latino community and I was thinking about how mm. we were a little bit stunned by some of those uh, those districts around Houston um, and the lower part of um, Texas. The Rio Grande Valley. Yeah, that didn't come home for the, the, the Democrats in 2020. And then I started mm. to sort of think, I, I just think that sometimes we, you know, as a Catholic myself, mm. um, we shouldn't make assumptions based on people's faith uh, mm-hmm. and i know that look, politics a lot of time is it's assumption making you know, you know african-american voters do this women do this you know we, they're all one mm. big group, and we sort of think that this is how they move i yep. wonder what's going on in the homes the private homes and the minds of catholic latino women uh mm. seeing this national debate around abortion because i think that i, I would m- make the hypothesis that i think even they think it's going too far yeah, actually, and polling has has shown that um, that um, so one of the most effective messages with um, you know more centrist or conservative leaning people, women and other people, um, is that even if they personally don't believe in abortion, wouldn't have an abortion themselves, they are um, really turned off by the idea of the government having control over this decision, which is ultimately a personal decision. There's been lots of really interesting polling um, that that has shown that if you talk about this as, um, you know, a government overreach, government interference, nothing to do with abortion, just, you know, why is the government making this decision, which is a private decision between me and my doctor and my family and all of those things, that is super effective. And that's true. Um, that has That has been shown to be true with Latino voters as well. Um, so I, th- I think you're right. We shouldn't we shouldn't make those assumptions um, by by any stretch of the imagination. But we are still seeing um, certain segments of the Latino population moving away from the party, and um, you know we need to to take serious steps to win them back and understand where we can't actually count on those votes and need to do something else. <laughs> And it's a growing population as well, so it's something the Democratic Party really need to address soon. Otherwise, the dem- you know, we talk about the democrats, the, the the demographics of America shifting to being mm-hmm. far more black and brown, um, mm-hmm. while the Latino community make up a large proportion of the yeah. American population and are continuing to grow. And if they don't, if they are not able to win the hearts and minds of those voters, then that's going to be a bit of a challenge, particularly in growing states like Texas. Yeah. yeah. Uh, last question. I want to talk about. Um, well, last topic, I should say, uh, the, Jan- <laughs> the January 6th committee, which I have found quite fascinating, like notwithstanding the fact that we've just made an argument that we need to stop talking about all the chaos in Washington <laughs> to win yeah. elections. I do think that the January 6th committee is doing something in, ta- in terms of taking the rub off Donald Trump, the shine off Donald Trump, um, so much so that I actually hope that Trump wins the GOP nomination. I oh, know that sounds crazy, oh. right? But I think that if he gets it, they lose. He's only won one election. So anyway, oh. January 6th, first of all, what are your thoughts on the committee? Where do you, see this, do you see this playing out? There's a big argument obviously right now between them and the Justice Department about, you know, because everyone's sort yeah. of wanting this. This is a bloody parliamentary committee. Like, you know, whoop do you do Hand this stuff over to the Justice Department. <laughs> Let's start getting some prosecutions going, people, you know. Let's put some people in jail. <laughs> Lock them up. What's going on there? <laughs> yeah, I I agree with, when when um, – when you first had the announcements that, that these committee hearings were going to start, I definitely was among the group who were kind of rolling their eyes, like, really, what, what are we going to learn? What are we going to get out of this? You know, yes, for posterity's sake, I'm glad that somebody is, um, you know, I, I struggle to say holding to account because there's no, there's no holding to account, but at least documenting what happened, right? So, yes, yay, glad that's happening, but is it actually going to make any difference? Um I didn't really think so, but I have been really pleasantly surprised by the outcome and the impacts of um, each one of those hearings, right? They've been masterfully produced um, to really have the maximum effect, right? And and um, are there things that we learned that we didn't know, you know, around the details? Yes, right? There are definitely some, like, great juicy details that came out about this, you know, did, did Trump lunge at the driver? Yeah, right. Um, and and I think it was 
surprising to see the evidence of how deeply he was involved, um, you know, in advance that he, that he did know that this was happening and, and totally condoned it and, um, wanted to participate, all of those things, um, to, to hear those facts, even if you kind of suspected them, still had more of a, of an emotional impact than I expected. Um, and I think there was a real sense of, um, you know, they were, they were wise to put many Republicans on at, at the front of this. Now, unfortunately, we only had two Republican members of Congress who were part of the committee, but you had so many people testifying who are part of the party. And I think it gave it some um, some weight and seriousness. It, it didn't feel like a show trial, uh, you know, even though I'm sure um, Trump and, and the right will say that it was, it felt serious. Um, so I was really... I was really happy, you know, to, to see that that happened. Um, I agree that, that perhaps it may have taken some of the rub off. I like, I like that term, but, but, you know, the, the folks who are watching this are already the people who were inclined to at least question, um, who he was or is as a person. So I, <laughs> I definitely, I don't want to see him as the nominee for the Republicans. I think it's extremely likely that he will be. Yes, maybe, I hope, you know, we've beat him before. I think we certainly can beat him again, but why take that risk? I th- and, and the damage that it will do just to have him as a candidate. Um, you know, there was such a um, a true emotional weight lifted when he was kicked off of Twitter and, you know, kicked off to Twitter and then no longer the president, right? It has, it has, it's a palpable change in just like the level of tension in everyday life, wherever you live. Um, and I don't look forward to that returning um, under any circumstances. But if, if he doesn't, if he doesn't win the nomination, then who does, do you think? Um, great question. I think DeSantis certainly looks um, you know, in best position right now. And he's and awful too. Yeah. I was going to say he's just as bad as Trump, but he's probably more effective a communicator as, sorry, that's not, no, that's not right. No, he's, no, that's, uh, he's, I think that he would be more effective as a, uh, as a president yeah. from a policy standpoint. I think that he, I think there's, there's chaos reigned in the, in the West wing, I think when Trump was in there. So I don't think they actually got a lot yes. of shit done. Right. I think he would be far more clinical in trying to pass the things that he wants. To, he would change America greater than Trump would. That's why I think that actually Trump's probably better being the top of the ticket. So I don't think Trump's going to win. Yeah, I I hear that. Um, and there's definitely a double-edged sword to that, right? Like, do you want the person who is more effective at passing their awful policies or not. But I think the damage that Trump does is far beyond even policy, right? He's, he is demolishing our institutions step by step. And, um, Oh, I don't, I don't know if you've seen all this stuff about, um, Oh, and I've forgotten. There's like a certain name for it. It's like document F or something. I'm, uh, I'm sure that's not right, but basically the Trump's, inner circle their plan to get rid of the whole slew of civil servants if he were to win the presidency and replace them with a political with political appointees i mean you know political appointees exist now but they're not in the positions to do much that's effective right they're just sort of at the very top they set the the tone um they mostly control the comms they're not the ones you know in the guts doing the work and and they have this whole plan to to completely change that um that is terrifying. That is terrifying to me. I, you know, and now that I say that, I don't know if DeSantis, you know, he could also just say, Hey, I'm going to do that same thing. Um, but I, I hope that, that that's not the case. I just think even at his worst, I don't know. I was about to say he couldn't be worse, but then we had Bush and thought nothing could be worse. So, you know, you never know. Last question. Who will be the presidential uh, nominee for the Democratic Party in 2024? There's obviously a lot of talk about Joe, his age. Um, God love him. Yep. What are your thoughts? Um, 
I will say it's a question. And the fact that it's a question is a story in and of itself. Um, the outcome of the, mid, uh, the, yeah, the midterms is going to have, I think, a real impact on what happens next, right? And you won't see, you won't see any real movement one way or the other until after the midterms, I'm sure. Um, all indications are that he intends to run. And if he intends to run, then I think, you know, it would be very surprising if he were not the nominee. So it's really a question of, of whether he's going to run. It seems like he's uh, locking down uh, support from potential rivals that could nominate against him. I think he he, had, he caught up with uh, Bernie Sanders uh, and sought a commitment from him that he wouldn't run as long as uh, Joe was running. I think Elizabeth Warren was another person that he reached out to. So clearly it's an indication that if he's not uh, running, he's certainly setting himself up to be able to run again. In oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, absolutely. No, and and anybody in his administration would say he is running and he will be the nominee, right? Um, but what you say in those circumstances doesn't mean that that's actually going to be what happens. So I think, you know, I would bet a whole lot of money that he is going to be the nominee. There we go. We'll see. We'll come back in. We'll come back in two years' time and uh, listen to this podcast again and see where we're, see where right. we're at. <laughs> I'm going to be broke. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I'm not a gambling person. I know all these bad bets. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, I won't ask you to make predictions about. Oh, you kind of did actually about the uh, the, the the midterms. Um, but we'll see. We'll see how that pans out. Uh, Katie Parsons, once again, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been too long. I can't believe it's been. Uh, if in my mind, I feel like I check in with you every twelve months, but obviously not. I that's on me. I'll uh, make sure that we don't do that again. It's been wonderful to hear from you and talk to you and uh, get your insights on a whole bunch of things. Uh, and we wish uh, you and the party and uh, progressives in the United States the best of luck heading into the mid- midterms in November this year. Thank you. Thank you. So, thank you. It's so much fun. Um, definitely do. Ask me back. We'll be, we'll be ready to go. <laughs> hey there. Thanks for listening to Social Democratic. Did you like the podcast? Hit the follow or subscribe button and be sure to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Podchaser. And to get all the latest updates on Socially Democratic, follow Dunstreet on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And we'll see you next Friday.